Davos 2019. This coverage of the Global Conversation on Change is brought to you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, I'm with Chris Becker, who's been coming to these World Economic Forum meetings many years, Chris, a decade and a half. Lots of people in South Africa still don't understand what it's about, and yet you, continue, you keep coming back, not every year, but, but most years. So how is it all put together? You've been coming for 16 years? Okay, so you're probably one of the few <laughs> more experienced people. Alec, is fascinating. You know, Davos is a town of 11,000 people. It is inaccessible. You have to pass through three sets of tunnels to get here. The mountains have a meter of snow. That is vital to the success of the, the operation, is to keep protesters away. You remember what happened in Seattle? I was there when the whole, the good and the powerful in the world collected and were dispersed when the protesters arrived. So the inaccessibility of Davos is absolutely crucial to get world leaders and business leaders together. The whole thing started in 1971. So Klaus Schwab was a 33-year-old professor at the University of Geneva and he had the idea that you could get business, government, academics together. And then over the years it grew, surprisingly. Later they added a few celebrities, I think mainly so that you can take selfies and show your kids you know, that you've been <laughs> to Davos, and then a few, call it achievers, to add some intellectual respectability. But today 3,000 people come, and it's astonishing. It's usually about 20 to 30 heads of state, hundreds of ministers. And then what's interesting is the hierarchy, right? So... If you want to be at the top, if you want to stay, have the privilege of staying at the Belvedere Hotel, which is the only five-star outfit in town, you play Klaus Schwab something like $600,000, at least a few hundred thousand dollars. They give you a discount sometimes. For instance, women get a discount, strangely. That doesn't pay for your food. It just pays for the privilege of applying to stay at the fancy hotel. But if you're Morgan Stanley, I mean, can you, be afford, can you afford to be seen to be at a lower level than Goldman Sachs. So you pay up and you go stay there and the hamburgers cost $40 and that's fine. I hang around at the Europe Hotel, which is much lower. It's sort of a middle-class ski resort, two-star, I would say. And then all the way to guest houses. So the 3,000 delegates arrange themselves according partly to rank, partly according to money, and then partly according to subsidy. So if someone is very prominent, the organizers might actually invite him for free and your excess fee pays for him so they invite youth people and so on as a smattering it's a, i think a good institution although of course there's an element of uh, fake about it this year interestingly enough we've got a young man i met yesterday 16 years old who won the world wildlife photographer of the year for 2018 from from durban uh, 45,000 people, he won it, and he's here. So it's that kind of <laughs> It's exactly. You know, the fascinating thing for me is I try to attend the, the less obvious stuff, of which there's a great deal. I mean, there are hundreds of lectures. This minute, as we're talking, there's a lecture going on right next door in the main Congress Hall about how grandmothers can treat depression. Now, I have no idea what will come out or whether it will be useful, but that's the sort of junk I go to. And the wonderful thing at Davos... But why? Why do you go off-piste, off as it were? Alec, I think um, Donald Rumsfeld, that lovely man, said that it's, as if you're a leader, it's not 
the known unknowns that get you. It's the unknown unknowns. It's the stuff that you don't know, you ought to know, right? That's what gets you. So I try to look widely and see if they, what's coming up next. And the wonderful thing about Davos is, you know, I find powerful people uninteresting because they're often surrounded by a caravan that screen away the human element. You can't walk up to a head of state and say, how are you doing? Let's talk. You know, he's screened off. There's a, an agenda for the meeting. If he says anything provocative, his guide sort of pumps his ribs. So they tend to be uninteresting as human specimens. But at Davos, the, the caravan is stripped away. You can only come alone. So you might sit at the piano bar drinking and the guy next door starts talking. You discover he's the energy minister of Indonesia. And you discover a common interest in tennis. And he says, you know, what do you think? Was Sampras or Federer the, the all-rounder of all time? And then you start talking. You form a friend and then you write him a letter, you know. Uh, you form interesting friendships. For instance, a few years ago, I got interested in genetic engineering. So I read a few books, but I'm a complete non-compoop. I never studied any biology. One evening, I went to a lecture by Craig Fenter, who was the first man to decode the human genome. He's the number one man in the world on this topic. So he gives a lecture, ends at 10 o'clock, there are about 30 people. I engage and we start talking. For instance, I ask him, do you think life on Earth originated once? Was it one spark and all of us are descendants of that? Or do you think it could have happened multiple times? Right, so we start talking. So we talk for an hour. What was his answer to that? Much too complex <laughs> to summarize in a minute. But we talk for an hour. Okay, now you consider this is the number one in the world and he's a very stern man. He's not a friendly chatter. He's a hard driver. And he talks to this complete idiot. And I come away enriched. Now that would not occur in a normal setting. But here he's alone in town. Maybe you know, there's nothing else to do in the evening. There's no one better to talk to. So let me talk to this guy. And that's what makes it so interesting is you, you meet people in fields that you find surprising and uh, sometimes something comes out of it and sometimes nothing yeah I, I, when you strip away uh, all of the the clothing or the emperor's clothes as it were human beings are fundamentally good and communications and, and, and social beings but but you do meet with the powerful certainly of the of, of the media industry in what is it called a, a group of governors or media governors it's called the Media, Entertainment and Information Governors Meeting. It's quite an interesting thing. So Chatham rules apply, so you can't afterwards report what an individual said, but you can report the topic. So, for instance, this year there was very interesting people. Like um, Vincent John Redding is the uh, chief executive of the Financial Times, which is my favorite newspaper. So you sit there and you meet him, and it's a certain amount of pleasure. Or, um, let's say, the New York Times head, who used to be the head of the BBC, right? He's now making a great success of the New York Times and is converting it to digital. Or there's Matthias Dopfer, who's the actual Springer head and is in a battle with Google. He wants Google to pay for news, like your news. I mean, they rip you off. And uh, you want to be paid, so he's your champion. So these things get discussed and this. There's a palpable tension between, I would say, Facebook and, and Google on the one side and European 
publishers and the other. It's not a broad internet versus print story because these European guys are all digitizing. They all have substantial digital businesses. But it's specifically that Facebook through its social network dominance and Google through its search has such a hold at the moment that they're squeezing the life out of some of these publications. And that battle is going to, I think, escalate in the next few years. Do you discuss that kind of thing within the governor's meetings? Yes, there's a certain amount of politeness because the relationship taken with Google is partly client and partly opponent, right? So sometimes there's, you can feel people are holding back. Over tea, they'll let blast. And then when you say, okay, now's your chance, tell people, there's Google, tell them. There's a sort of a reserve. You can understand that, right? All of us are careful about our business concerns. But it's a useful gathering. I think people need to talk about this. And um, the media also realized at the moment there are big issues about society, fake news, the trust element. So I think it's excellent to get together sometimes and discuss it. Now, obviously, with your connection as NASPAS being the biggest shareholder in Tencent, you've got a, a, a significant dog in this, in this fight. How are you seeing it all develop? <laughs> Alec, I really have no idea because the, it wasn't evident that this Trump bust-up would occur. I mean, there were tensions, but there are always tensions in the world. It escalated in a bad way and it's affecting the whole world economy. In the case of Chinese stocks like Tencent, they're off 20 to 25% probably. Not on fundamentals because the Chinese economy is still growing at above 6%. Maybe a notch slower, but rapidly by all historical standards but what has changed is business confidence so essentially people are saying and you know it so well better than I when I invest in a stock the PE I'm prepared to pay is a, f- a function of my risk factor right so if I think it's a risky stock I demand more profits per dollar spent right so low PE if I'm very confident that the world's a good place I ramp up the PE and I pay more so at the moment, people say, well, the world looks risky. How will this ever end? And consequently, they're de-risking. And that has taken, I would say, at least 20% off Chinese stocks in general. And how it will end is not clear at all. Do you have a theory? <laughs> uh, if I did, I would be a little embarrassed to <laughs> express it in front of you. But uh, just, just, just on that uh, context, your investment in Tencent has been spectacularly successful, but it's also brought an ima- a huge responsibility in NASPERS being 20% of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. So just about everybody in the country has an interest in, in how NASPERS performs. That responsibility must be weighing pretty heavy on some shoulders. Yes, and I think it's especially the pension funds. So typically, p- people think the JSE would be owned by individuals, right? And you know well, but I think most people don't. Individuals constitute, for instance, 6% of our stock. It's nothing. We're basically owned by pension funds all over the world. And sometimes directly and sometimes via a pension fund investing in a trust or having a money manager convey the funds. But in essence, it's basically people's savings. So, of course, with multi-choice spun off, hopefully now at least have two shares. And it's quite interesting that our stock price is a function not only of the China issue, but of South Africa. And I thought that 
so-called Team South Africa here in Davos did rather well. What, what did you think? You were also at the South Africa party. Uh, now that I will express an opinion. I, I, I think it's I think it's it's fair to say that the performance by Team South Africa, if you were to rate most of the country's teams that came here, it would certainly be in the top ten percent. It was it, it was confident. It was humble. It was a sense of humour. And uh, and it was uh, it was the right people, people you could engage and and listen to. So, uh, I felt very proud to be a South African for the first time in quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, maybe to just two observations. The one is Cyril went further than before when he talked about what is it nine last years. That was a more damning indictment of the past that I ever heard him give. It's the Davos effect, you know, when you hear sometimes people are slightly bolder. The second is, I think we've got two stars in terms of performance. One is the governor of the Reserve Bank. He is so sharp. At the breakfast, I don't know whether you were at the breakfast, uh, Thursday morning? Uh, Yes, I was, yeah. Okay. Now, Adrian Gore from the stage gave a figure, the sort of opportunity cost of GDP lost due to mismanagement over the past nine years. And the only person in the audience that caught him on getting his, his figures wrong was actually <laughs> the Reserve Bank governor and he said that's actually rands, that's not dollars, right? He's mentally very sharp and that imbues a certain confidence. He's also independent of mind, I think. The other one is Tito Mbaweni that has a, a refreshing candor and people pick it up. When you sit on the stage and just mouth the usual nonsense, thing, people pick it up quickly. But when you have a fresh expression or you grab a problem and sort of shell it down to the core, uh, they sense a certain confidence. And I think he exudes confidence. And then, of course, it's interesting, South Africa, there's also the style element. So our Minister of Communications, Stella, <laughs> she, Ndebedi, uh, uh, Abraham, she was spectacular in red, you know, really. So next year we ought to bring some musicians. Don't you think? <laughs> well, they used to. <laughs> Looking back, uh, we had Freshly Ground here. We've had Jimmy Tlutlu here. But it seems like the the social element of Davos has now really been downplayed. As it ends on a Friday instead of on a Sunday. That's true. Do you think it's an element of guilt that it shouldn't, the feeling is it shouldn't be seen to have too good a time? That's a very interesting point because there has definitely been uh, a different approach towards the Davos man uh, evolving in the past few years. Uh, I guess the people that you're mixing with are wanting to keep more of a low profile? Indeed, perhaps. You uh, you would have noticed that I'm sure we talked about in the past how the confidence levels oscillate. So in 2007, the bankers were very bullshy all over the show. In 2009, after the bust, you would see Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs hiding behind a pillar. <laughs> Jimmy Diamond would be behind the rubbish bin. They wouldn't be seen. Now, this year is fascinating. I'll show you a picture on my f- cell phone, but um, here's the uh, Facebook office or the the Facebook building in the main street called the promenade it's a huge building and then the Facebook branding was scaled down to be barely legible because between booking this building and today a lot of things happened that Facebook has a lot (laughs) a lot to feel guilty about and then in the 
windows, no branding. The only message in the windows, choose love. Right? So you can see Facebook feels guilty, they're hiding. They have to be here because they have to engage with the regulators. But the wind is blowing against them. But the wind can change again tomorrow. That's so interesting. I, I remember going to a Facebook event perhaps three years ago where the arrogance was, was just oozing out of the pores. Uh, and this year they cancelled their event. Yes, quite true. So it's like the, it's like the bankers, as you say, in 2008. They, they were nowhere, or 2009, nowhere to be seen. And, uh, but they're back, they're back here. Although it does seem to be scaled down a little. There's a pet shop. Uh, on on my walk, which was always taken by somebody, Barclays Bank had it for many years. This year, it's still a pet shop. Yes. Alex, so when you look at Davos, there's an element of pretension, right, of fads. So if the refugees are a hot topic, they'll be here. And as you've seen, you could have. There's a place where you can experience life as a in a refugee camp, see life through the eyes of a refugee, and when that topic blows over they forget about it so there's a certain faddish element about it but I think it's undeniable that engaging with each other and talking is still better than fighting right so there is no place really where business and government and academics can discuss anything and although there would be a certain amount of cant and pretension on the stage the topics are placed squarely and someone engages and some of the people are honest and some of the points of view are new at least to me so I think it serves an overall purpose, at a cost, but a good purpose. I, I, I've noticed that the environmental and sustainability issues have been coming to the fore. Is that something as well that registered with you? Absolutely. Absolutely, clearly. You can pick up the issues. For instance, in the media world, I would say the big issue is an element of trust. So the consumer used to trust media more than they trusted politicians or the church, for that matter. But that has been eroding, and is that could that be turned around, or is it a permanent phenomenon of the internet world that trust has eroded? Issue of privacy is huge, and if you just contrast the subcategories, young people feel less uh, used to feel less sensitive about privacy than older people. It might now be changing. There's some indications. Europeans are fanatical about privacy, and the reason is for me fascinating. It's if you're a German. You have the Stasi in your mind, right? The German secret police. If you're a Russian, you have the KGB. So that's vivid, and they hate the idea of intrusion. Americans don't have that history, so they say, well, the world is more or less benign, the government won't do anything. So you could sense that an issue like that pops onto the stage. To a certain extent, the world is flat, that all of us share the same concern. But to some extent, the cultural factors do intrude. You know, there's a way that Muslim countries would spin this, and there's a way that an American would see this. So an Indian would have a different perspective. So you have this interesting tension between, in all of us, we have an element of the world citizen, which is growing, but also an element of cultural anchoring. And you can, on an issue like this, feel the tension between the two. That's fascinating. The the other area where it, it's it's marked is on inflation the Germans have had hyperinflation the Americans haven't really experienced that before so in their whole monetary policy they would have a different approach towards it I've heard that being said but I, I, it's a very good point that you've picked up there on the, on, on the privacy issue and that's big, it, it's a big thing for your company too Indeed 
So if you look at data, it's this interesting dichotomy. I think the, the real problems in life that you need to talk about are those where you can make out a plausible case on both sides. If something is evidently evil, it's not even interesting. It's not really, it doesn't challenge anything. Okay, it's evil, so what? But take data privacy. If Amazon knows your tastes, your exact tastes, it can actually prescribe books that suit your taste, and they do it with me. So I read a lot, biographies and all sorts of nonsense. So they predict my taste fairly accurately. But now let's say I contract cancer. Amazon knows it immediately. Now how do they know it? Simply by the books I read. But now I start filing a prescription so they know the type of the cancer, the stage of my treatment and all of that. Okay. Now the tension arises. You can make a plausible argument that the fact that Amazon knows my precise state of cancer means that if something new gets published in this field or a new medicine gets trialed, they can actually call me and say, we know you have this type of exotic cancer. We have this new medicine. We picked it up in one of our technical publications. New medicine, there's a trial of 20 people. Could, would you want to consider that? It's very useful to me. It might save my life. On the other hand, just consider the amount of intrusion. So Google knows everything you read, right? They know how long you pause over which page, right? They know uh, which people you follow, where you look for information. And to see that published on a lamppost in the middle of town is not particularly pleasant. So there's that immense tension. You can make a plausible argument both ways. And how society will decide, that's still a bit unclear. And that's exactly when the these cultural factors intrude. So the Germans look at the same set of facts and they say, look, the evil of the state intruding is too big. Let's push this direction. Americans look at it in a different way. Chris, how do you compete with that, though, when you, you know Amazon and Google have all this information? Surely their ability to, to reach the market through or what they're offering to advertisers is, is incredibly powerful. How do you, as a media company offset that Alec that is exactly why the state is starting to take an interest and it's not unexpected consider the steel industry when they started in the mid 19th century to become a sizable industry on the back of the railroads and so on they were completely left alone by 1900 in the US they were huge companies run by people like Andrew Carnegie that owned railway companies that took the coal to the furnace and melted the iron and controlled the whole process sort of vertical integration and then society stepped in and said look you could reach a point where this is too powerful, how do we now arbitrate do we break you up or do we limit it in some way and the same is happening to the internet quite validly so the societies look at that and say when, let's say, Facebook was very small, we didn't need to bother young students making dates on some electronic network, who cares? But now when every single housewife has Facebook, the issues arise and people say, okay, what are the issues? There is a, we talked about the issue of privacy, right? But there's also the issue of, let's say, smaller players. So if Facebook, for instance, checks your site and they detect who is subscribing to you at the moment and they were to target each one individually with a personalized letter to say we've got a superior news business website right I mean you, you, just your, your sense is that there's something unfair about it right 
That's what needs to be arbitrated. Now the power, power at the moment lies in the US. So Europe is, is a consumer of the internet, it's not a producer. So you have an added tension. So European governments are saying, look, if we, Europe's consumption of the internet is about 80% of the US consumption. So it's a big consumer, but it has almost no internet companies of size. So there's this tension. The government says, look, if Amazon, let's say, closes down the little bookseller on the corner, I lose his two employees and the rates he pays his municipality and Amazon sucks the money out and takes it to California. Is that good? So there's a further sort of nationalistic element that is imposed. On the other side, I think one can validly argue that the Internet enriches our lives immensely. So I was thinking recently, if you could have a choice, you could be an unemployed guy in France today or King Louis the Fourteenth. <laughs> Who will you be? Well, he didn't have a one tooth in his mouth in the last 40 years because there were no toothbrushes. But he also didn't have a Facebook group. He never watched TV, right? He couldn't order the books that were published in London like we can. So the Internet has enriched and still will enrich our lives a lot more. I think we just will, over time, formulate rules to contain the beast, much like every other industry developed. You know, when cars started, they were first feared, and then a man with a red flag needed to run in front of the car, and that sort of nonsense. And but there were also no rules. Then we made rules. You know, the traffic lights drive on the left or right side of the road. You have to be licensed and so on. And gradually we contained the car industry. So although it still kills lots of people a year, the benefit exceeds the negative, right? And I think the same will happen with the internet. It's immensely useful, enrich our lives. We just have to make sensible rules that doesn't kill it, but just contains it in proper, a proper manner. I, I'm, I'm getting that sense of what you've, uh, what you've just articulated, coming out of Davos this year. That yes. there's a, a feeling markets don't know everything. Sometimes markets make mistakes, and when they do, they need to be shown the right direction. That's when regulators, that's when governments have to come in. That's true. This, uh, the second element is a lifestyle, a life phase issue. I think the internet developed in the only way it possibly could, which is that you experiment and most of the experiments get killed. There's no point in first deciding whether we need Twitter. I would have said you don't need it, right? So at that time, 2005, we already had um, pictures on the internet and lengthy emails. Who wants 140 characters? I would have said can't ever work. It did. So the natural selection takes place actually before you need to, to edit, right? And then a small percentage will survive. And some of them will stay small forever. So there's, in New York, let's say Etsy that sells homemade crafts. Do you really need to regulate it? It's small, it'll stay small. It's no real danger, just leave it in peace. But then certain things grow unexpectedly. So let's say Twitter. Against all odds, it grew to something significant, which starts to influence elections. Then we need to start making rules and saying, okay, if a foreign power buys ads, should that be disclosed? How should it be disclosed? Right? Um, what information can I sell on if I'm Twitter to a third party without infringing privacy? So I think in terms of the lifestyle of each technology, at its start, it tends to be fairly unregulated. 
And if it fails, it never gets regulated. But if it succeeds greatly, society takes an interest in regulated. It's a natural process. I think the industry should accept it. And society should sort of be responsible of the process and say, let's not kill the baby, let's massage it in the proper direction. Chris, uh, two last questions. Uh, multi-choice is the last one. Uh, but the, the second last one is, who are the most interesting people that you've managed to, to engage with here in Davos? Uh, you said you, you're not mad about uh, people who, who have um, armor around them in the form of bodyguards and so on. Who... who Without, without, uh, you can even, if you don't want to name names, just, just tell us broadly then. You know, the interesting people are not confined to professions. So in the media world, for example, you find fascinating people. You find lawyers who are great conversationalists because they work with words, right? I've, it's an individual matter. I think there's some professions where you find, or at least I've found in my life, less interesting material, like actors, it's very difficult. An actor appears glamorous. So you and you think you have a false sense of knowing him as a, you've seen him in two movies, right? So you have a false sense that we are friends, but you, you, you know him to some extent, but he doesn't know you. And often there's nothing there. You, you explore the facade, but he plays roles. So if you say now, okay, play yourself, he says, but I, I don't really, there's no one there, right? There's no one behind the facade because I've played roles in my life. What is there to say? So it's very much an individual thing. But the key thing which Davos, for me, has a benefit is it strips away the, the defenses. And it says, okay, you may or may not be interesting, but talk to me. And you keep learning, as, as you've shared with examples uh, a moment ago. Yes. So what do you want to know about multi-choice? <laughs> is it a good investment? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm sure you'd say it is. But it, I'm sure your life is a lot easier now that, uh, that it's, it's, it's spun off. And it must have been taking an inordinate amount of management time if you think about the percentage that multi-choice uh, is of the whole NASPAS group. Alex, actually, I think I can't say whether it's a good investment. It's simply the market that needs to decide. Plus, the future is always uncertain. But I think it's a, quite a well-poised company. So they have operations in just short of 50 countries, some bigger, some smaller. It's The industry is about, um, let's say, 30 years old. So it still has some legs to go, especially since our fixed Internet's not great in Africa. And it needs to move itself into the Internet like all newspapers. So... I think there's a lot of vitality in it, but NASPAS itself is now almost exclusively an internet company. So the investors we get are typically saying, so we get, let's say, an American fund that specializes in the internet stuff, and it says, I'm interested in e-food and classifieds, and so this TV, what is that? You know, why do you have it in the portfolio? On the other hand, on the internet side, we still, we like to occur or have the capacity to occur losses. And the problem is if you lose that capacity, you're in trouble because you need to try new things. They will fail. Some will fail. A lot will fail. And even the successful ones might need reinvestment. So like Uber or something like that, you run down your income statement to a break-even or less in order to spur growth. But TV is in a completely different um, life phase. So it's basically profitable and steady. So the 
The investor wanted to take a wild swing and the internet's not going to go there. But the investor who wants a regular dividend flow will. So we found over time that the, the profile we need for the two companies are quite different. That our internet investors underestimate TV and actually don't like it. They say, I'm not interested in dividends or steady income. Give me growth. Well, it's not going to grow fast, but it's steady. On the other hand, a whole class of people would be interested in that sort of investment. Steady, big dividends. But they say, all this internet stuff, I can't buy a company where the minority stake is of the profile I like, but I get all this other risky junk. So it's actually best to split it. And I think a good many of our shareholders will keep both shares. There's no reason not to. You can say, okay, they fulfill different functions, they have different profiles, but why not keep both? Now, it's so far back when you were a young man that you, you really were the father of, of satellite television in South Africa. So, so you, you, can t- you can tip them. You, you, you picked that one early on. You picked the internet early on. What are you looking at as the next, perhaps, uh, uh, big thing to, to fill out the trifecta? Alec, I don't know is the honest answer. And the surprising thing in life is how the big changes in my life were unpredictable. So commercial internet started in, let's say, 1995, right? Not only did I not realize the significance beforehand, but if you ask me at the end, on December 31, 1995, what is the most important thing that happened today or this year? I don't think I would have said the internet, right? It was... It happened, even Bill Gates realized only the next year in a famous memo to staff that this is fundamental. And I think the next change will be equally surprising. If you look at big waves, the manipulation of call it electromagnetic waves, right? Um, started in the Second World War with the big computers and eventually the PC and eventually the internet and now e-commerce and all the spin-offs. Now that whole um, generation of technologies must run out of steam at some point. That it will continue to exist but the growth rate will flatten. Yeah, I have yeah. a notion that the biological sciences will, will be um, prominent in the next few years. But that might be completely wrong. It's a guess. <laughs> Davos 2019. This coverage of the Global Conversation on Change is brought to you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.